All right. Well, Anthem Ventura, so good to be with you guys today, whether you're joining us in a backyard community or in a Zoom community or joining us online. It's good to be with you. My name is Kevin. Uh, I help lead Anthem Camarillo. And for many of you, it's been a while since I've been with you. And man, we miss you guys. And we are so grateful for what God's doing in your community. And man, it has been so special to be able to start journeying, journeying through John together. Uh, and so I'm excited for you guys, for those of you guys who are in a backyard community or a Zoom community, you guys are going to get to chew on some of the stuff that we talk about a little bit after uh, the message. And uh, I'm excited. I love the book of John. Uh, I feel like John is so amazing for a number of reasons. One is because like on the surface, surface, John is incredibly simple, incredibly relatable, and love just oozes out of John. And it's amazing. But on the other hand, like by God's grace, I've been walking with Jesus. I'm only, well, what am I now? I always forget. After you pass like 33, it all gets kind of blurry. I'm, I'm turning 30. I'm 38 right now. Uh, but I've been walking with Jesus for over 30 years. And I tell you, every single time I go through John, it blows my mind. And, I, and there's more to it, more and more and more and more. And so we're going to do a little bit of both today. We're going to grab some of the low-hanging fruit as we work our way through John, and, and then we're also going to try and dig a little bit deeper to understand some of the uh, beautiful, uh, really intentional theological writing that's behind it. So we're in John 2 today. Uh, you guys are kicking off this, this new series. You guys finished John 1. John 1 is jam-packed. We got to see so much of who Jesus is. If you felt like you were drinking from a fire hose while you were hearing all of these titles about who Jesus is, like, it's because you were. John is just, he's giving us, like, every title about who Jesus is because John in particular is incredibly focused that we would have a high Christology, that we would have a great understanding of who Jesus is. So in chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the Word, that He is eternal, that He is God, even Yahweh. In John 1.14, we see that He's not just God, He's also man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, 100% man and 100% God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's rabbi. He's from Nazareth. He's rooted in a time, a place, a history, a location. He's king of Israel, as Nathaniel shared, as we learned last week. He's the son of man who will reign forever and ever. And he is the gateway between heaven and earth and the means in which heaven and earth can intersect. Again, that's a ton about who Jesus is. Uh, and John, that all of that is, is really used as a, a rubric, a, a launching pad for the rest of the gospel. And we really start to get into our narrative today as we're going to be looking at two stories from Jesus, and we get to take a look at his first sign. And so uh, here we go. This is the wedding at Cana. So open your Bibles to John 2, and here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, 
What does this have to do with me? I'm sorry, that always makes me chuckle. It's, I promise you, it's not as rude as it sounds. Uh, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of that out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And then when, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I don't know how many of you guys have watched The Chosen. If you're anything like me, you avoid um, Christian movies or TV shows, especially, uh, like The Plague. Uh, I, I avoided this show for so long, uh, but man, I couldn't recommend it high, more highly. It is phenomenal. I highly recommend you take a, a good look at this series as it focuses in on the life of Jesus, and especially as we're going through the book of John. There are so many connections, and, and if you have been watching, there is a whole episode that's built around this scene, the wedding at Cana. And, and if you did, man, I'm sure that this, as you're reading it, it helps bring a few things to life. And so as we go through this, we, we're, we're going to, again, we're going to look at some of the low-hanging fruit. There's some stuff that wherever you've come from, whatever your background is, you can grab hold of really easily um, or pretty easily. And then there's some other things that take a little bit of digging to understand with John. And so we're going to try and do a little bit of both here. And so this is the first of seven public signs of Jesus. Uh, and uh, this is really the beginning of Jesus fulfilling what he told Nathanael. As Nathanael was blown away at the end of chapter 1 that Jesus saw him under the fig tree, but Jesus said, you think this was something? Trust me, you're going to see much greater things than this. And really, just a few days after that calling of those disciples, they're now here in Cana celebrating this wedding and experiencing more than just Jesus, you know, seeing somebody underneath a fig tree. So Jesus and his, disciple, and his disciples, they're traveling. And one of the things I love seeing here is that Jesus is kind of a normal guy. He's invited to a wedding, and he's brought in. His mother's invited to this wedding. And Jesus, of course, he's got a lot of big things on his plate. He's got some important things to be on about. And yet here we see Jesus going and participating in a wedding. I love this. Sometimes, again, we just focus in on the divinity of Jesus and we forget that Jesus is a man and that Jesus himself participated in things in which normal people would do. And this isn't like a wedding like you or I would go and attend that maybe in its like worst format is four hours long. Weddings in the first century were an entire week-long festival. Can you imagine that? A week long wedding. Some of you guys have been involved in Catholic weddings that feel like they go on for a really, really long time. Uh, 
this is on a whole, whole nother level. Uh, but in this passage, we get to see, again, on the surface, we see a compassionate Jesus who listens to the plea of his mother while being sensitive to what God is on about. And in, in an act of grace, he helps a family avoid embarrassment and shame. And he changes water to wine. Again, for a lot of us, we actually do grasp this. We make a big deal of weddings right now, even in our culture still, even in the middle of COVID, we, we make a big deal of weddings, or a lot of people do. But in the first century, it was such a big deal. And if you threw a bad party, you weren't just um, you know, laughed at or there weren't a few jokes that were cracked your way. It, it was actually like a social stigma. You were marked. Because this is such an honor, shame, cat uh, type of environment, that if you threw a bad wedding party, you would be mocked. You would be made fun of. Your family would be viewed as less than, and it would be something perhaps that you would never live down again. And running out of wine is seen as a major faux pas. It's something wine in the Old Testament in particular is connected with joy. And if you don't have enough wine to last that amount of time, people often saw that even as like a sign of which this wedding, this marriage must not be blessed. It was a big, big deal. But this is an incredible act of grace on Jesus' part. And it's seen as an incredible act of generosity on the part of the host family of the wedding. We see this even as the host and the officiant of the wedding festival. He's blown away by the wine that's being presented after everyone's already been a little tipsy and they shouldn't really care what this wine tastes like anymore. This is, he's blown away because everybody at that point, they see, serve the cheap stuff. They serve the two-buck chuck. And he's blown away at the generosity of the family that's throwing the party because this is the best wine that they've ever seen, best wine that they've ever tasted. And again, we're in the big picture space, and this is the record that John puts down as the first sign. And in this, as Jesus changes the water to wine, he says that it manifests his glory in the sense that God became visible. Again, this is a direct connection to the end of chapter 1, where Jesus is reminding his disciples that they're going to see these greater things and that their belief is going to increase, and that's exactly what we see happen at the end of this. There's a few things that I really want us to notice in this section that are clear to anyone, kind of no matter what the background. The first obvious one is Jesus performs a miracle. And I don't know if we understand how much wine Jesus made here, but he changes approximately 180 gallons of water into wine. Do you know how many bottles of wine that would be? Any guesses? This is 900 bottles of, of wine. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of wine. Granted, it's a week-long festival, but that is a lot of wine. I wonder what they started with. But this is a big deal. There's, there's, this wine is, again, it is the best wine that anybody has tasted. It's a good indicator of the the best vintages are yet to come, and there's an abundance. There's more than enough. So Jesus performs this miracle. Again, we're going to dive deeper in just a minute. 
But second, there, there's, there's this other thing that's kind of a big deal that's right in front of us in John's gospel, and that's where Mary, she asked Jesus for, to help. And I love this. Mar- Mary, she turns to Jesus, and she asks him to do something about it. In essence, as she's asking, she's saying, son, these families will be put to open shame. Their lives potentially, their reputation could be ruined. Please do something. Mary's not demanding. Mary's not manipulating Jesus. She's asking Jesus because she knows that actually Jesus is the only one that could do something about this. There isn't another option. But I think one of the things that I love best, even after Jesus gives the response where he says, woman, again, which is, this is actually a respectful answer, even though it seems distant. And he says, my hour isn't come. We'll get there in a minute. But even after he responds the way he responds, what does Mary do? She turns to the servants and and she tells them to listen, obey, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. And they do. And what happens? Transformation happens. And this is amazing on a couple fronts. First, this sign, the first sign, who, who primarily gets to see it? Is it the most honored people in the party? Is it the most wealthy people? No. Who gets to see and witness this sign right in front of them? Many of the disciples probably aren't even seeing this sign. Who gets to see it? It's the servants. Those that don't even get to participate in the wedding, but are serving it. Jesus reveals himself to them and to the disciples. We have zero indication that any of the other folks in the wedding party or in the wedding ceremony or in the festival at participating with the wedding even had any clue. And this reminds us of the heart of compassion that God has and how God has come, not just for the elite, but for those whom the world overlooks. We need to have eyes for people like this, like Jesus did. And the second thing that is incredibly important, and if you get nothing else from today, it's this. Transformation comes from obeying Jesus' words. Well before Jesus ever went to the cross, Mary didn't know how Jesus would respond. She wasn't sure whether or not he would say yes or whether or not he would say no. She didn't know. The one thing she did know was this. We must listen to the words of Jesus and do them. So many of us want to see our lives, our culture, and this world to be changed, to be more like Jesus. The starting point is rather simple. It's listen to the words of Jesus and do whatever he says. If you do this, God guarantees transformation. Friends, sometimes we... We like to pontificate, we like to think, we like to dream, we like to come up with great ideas. And I do too, I'm a dreamer, I'm an emotional guy, I'm a feeler, all of those things. But man, there's sometimes where the word of God is really clear and yet we still just blatantly choose to do something different. 
would we heed the words of the mother of Jesus who says, listen to whatever he says and do it. Wow, how, how different would this world be? How different might my life be, my marriage, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my coworkers, my relationship with my friends? <clears throat> how different might it be if the starting point where I'm going to listen to the words of Jesus and do whatever he says? Now, again, why would people listen to Jesus? This is where it's important to pull back to John 1, right, where we've got all of these titles and these designations of who Jesus is. Because I wouldn't tell you to listen to me like that. I wouldn't tell you to listen to my dad like that. I wouldn't tell you to listen to Bert like that. Why would we say to listen to whatever it is that Jesus has to say? Well, because of everything that John had already articulated about him, that he is the word, he, has, he is eternal. He is the one in whom all things have been created. He is the great rabbi. He is the anointed one. He is the lamb of God. He is king of Israel. He is Messiah. He's the one in whom we've been waiting for. He is the promised one. That is why we ought to listen to him. And then additionally, because of his great love and mercy, he's showing us these signs like changing water to wine, and we'll see even greater things to come in which he validates and demonstrates, I am he. So let's dig a little bit deeper here. Jesus, in this miracle, we see him look at these six stone water jugs that hold about 30 gallons of water. These gallons of water, uh, or these, these utensils, these tubs, these bowls, are used for washing to help cleanse the outside of the body for different purposes, but they're used in connection with the temple At the end of chapter 1, we see this moment in verses 50 through 51. We've already referenced it a bunch, where Jesus tells Nathanael that you will see greater things than these. You will see angels ascending and descending from heaven on the Son of Man. This is a direct connection to Genesis 28, known as Jacob's Ladder. In the story, we have a God, we have Yahweh giving Jacob a picture through a dream of heaven and earth intersecting. We have a reestablishment of the Abrahamic covenant and a promise that God will dwell among his people. Jesus, at the end of John 1, is saying that he is the Son of Man. He is the ladder in the vision given to Jacob. He is the means in which heaven and earth can actually intersect, where heaven comes to earth. He is the means in which we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's the way in which this could even be possible. And we'll see in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. N.T. Wright shares how every time there is a sign that is performed, it's a moment where heaven and earth are intersecting. And the cross will be the ultimate culmination of this. 
This section of water to wine isn't just a cool miracle in which a family receives honor instead of shame, which is an amazing, gracious byproduct, but it is an illusion. It's a shadow of God filling these jars, which have been used for decades to wash the outside of men and women, and saying and showing that this is insufficient, and that Jesus is bringing something new, and it's going to come from within that old system, but it will be better. Jesus is bringing transformation that will be far better and much more sufficient than what was accomplished in and through the temple, which brings us to our next story where Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews in verse 13 was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Awesome. Okay. So the whole end of that section is a reminder once again of the humanity and divinity of Jesus. But here in this section, Jesus comes to Jerusalem during a time when Jews were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They're required three times a year to come all the way to Jerusalem, Passover, which is what he's in right now, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Here is the time of Passover, and three years from now, he's going to be returning to Jerusalem for Passover, and there we will see the Lamb of God. Give up his life as a ransom who takes away the sin of the world. But this time in Passover, and like we'll see later too, he's ticked. This is something that's important for us to pause on right now because there has been a lot of talk in circles that refer to Jesus being angry, and it's important that we as Christians make sure that we get angry too. And a lot of times people will say, well, man, Jesus overturned tables. You can just keep talking about, let's just love people. Let's just love people all the time. But friends, I got to tell you, we do not understand what's happening when Jesus is flipping over tables. Because ultimately, Jesus flipping over these tables will lead to his execution. And Jesus flipping over these tables, they are being flipped over because he loves the world. As we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus flips these tables because he is furious with who? Rome? No. 
He's furious with the religious elite. He's furious with those who should have known better. He's furious with those who should have recognized what the Messiah ought to be like, and they don't. He's upset that people are abusing the temple. He's upset that religious people are taking advantage of the poor. He's upset at wealthy people who've invaded the court of Gentiles and who are using this space to conduct business rather than it being a place where curious seekers could find answers and be taught and encouraged about the one true God. Jesus is upset because religious elites are polluting the very space that God that God designed to be the place where heaven and earth intersected. That was the point of the temple, that this is the place, that vision from Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. This was the place where God dwelt with his people. This was to be the place where heaven and earth intersect. And here it's being polluted by a religious elite who are looking to make a profit off of the poor and those who are foreigners, who are far away, who are having a hard time bringing their animals to be part of the temple sacrifice. And so Jesus has had enough. He's frustrated. He makes this whip. He gets out and he's like whipping it around. I don't know if he catches some guys or not. He flips the tables. He's angry. He's angry. Because God in his love gave the temple to his people to be a place where they might meet Yahweh. The ironic part now is that Jesus is here, the eternal one, and they recognize him not. They say he has zeal for his father's house. And that zeal for father's house will consume him. And I think we, we read this in a, not in a, in a prophetic way, actually, even though it's both prophetic back then and it's actually prophetic here in John 2. Yes, it's consuming him in the sense that he's angry and he's driving people out. But actually what this is a foretaste of is actually Jesus' crucifixion, that actually zeal for his father's house, zeal to make sure that the people of this world will have a place in which they can dwell. He will make sure that that is possible, and it is only going to become possible through the sacrifice in which he will give of himself as a ransom for many So Jesus gives them himself a prophecy. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is a big deal and of course they don't understand. Oh, it's taken 46 years to build this. Yeah, right, Jesus, you can't build this in three. And John gives us the insight that was gained after walking with, living with, praying with, eating with, witnessing crucifixion and resurrection that Jesus was actually talking about his own body. Jesus is saying, you fools, you think it's this temple that makes you holy? It's this temple that makes you close to God? Open your eyes. I, who made heaven and earth, am standing right in front of you. You can almost hear John 1, 10 through 11 
again in this section where he says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, Jesus clears the temple because it breaks his heart what people are doing here. It breaks his heart that people are not only getting in the way of worship to God, but they are missing the Messiah who is right in front of him. You see, Jesus is revealing to us through the changing of water to wine in the six purification jars and the cleansing of the temple that the true temple, the Holy One, King of Israel, is here. And it's through belief in him that we find life and abundance. For us today, what do we do with something like this? How many of us have found ourselves trying to find salvation or satisfaction in some ancient practice, diet, or whatever, and Jesus is standing right in front of you? We heard the invitation last week to the disciples from John the Baptist as they're pursuing Jesus. And Jesus asks them the question, what are you looking for? I'm standing right here. Friends, our world is trying to convince us what you ought to be looking for. But Jesus is right here. He's revealed himself to us in his word. All throughout John, there's this great invitation to believe. We've read it every week that I've written these things to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you might find life. You might gain life in his name. Wherever you are at, the invitation is for greater belief. And the second thing for us that I would challenge you to consider is many of us have held Jesus' words as great insights or those are wonderful teachings and principles of a great teacher from a long time ago. But maybe some of us need to be rebuked by God's word and by Mary today. As she rightly said back then, and it's just as important for us today, listen to whatever he tells you and do it. When we say listen to whatever he tells you, we chiefly are talking not about what your super-duper feelings might feel, but what has God, through his word, explicitly told us about Jesus? What has Jesus explicitly told us about himself? Let's start there, friends. Let's start there. It's going to be a tough journey. But if we want to see transformation, if we want to see this world change, if we want to see healing take place, it starts with listening to Jesus and doing what he says. I hope you guys are encouraged this morning and are excited about the journey of continuing to grow in our belief, faith, and our follow-up, our action in responding to who Jesus is. 
Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus to us through your word. God, I confess my slowness to obey the things that you have said. And we ask through your spirit that you might empower us to listen, respond, and obey. Thank you for coming in the flesh and revealing yourself to us in order that we might be reconciled to God. Would you be glorified in our lives? We pray over conversations and things that will come as a result. Jesus, would you be in it? Stir us, we pray, in your precious name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great time in your communities, and uh, hopefully look forward to seeing you soon.